You're listening to the Alchemical Tech Revolution, and I am your host, Wayne McRoy. Good evening, everyone. Tonight, we're going to discuss the future images of man. Uh, what are we talking about here? Well, uh, uh, we'll be delving into Chapter 7 of a book called The Changing Images of Man here tonight. And this was actually a uh, Stanford Institute study put together uh, by a think tank group to try to determine the best way to steer the social uh, construct of what man is and what his image of himself is in the future. And they came up with several plausible scenarios here. And in chapter 7, we're going to discuss societal choices and consequences of changing images. Uh, so they acknowledge very early in the book that they utilize different concepts, things like mythological archetypes, as well as uh, different types of allegory and various other aspects of subjective experience to influence the minds of the masses and steer the public consciousness in a way. Uh, so this is all about social engineering, and this was actually a, uh, a study uh, to determine the future of social engineering tropes and to figure out where it is they would like to steer humankind. And what they came up here with in Chapter 7, as we'll see, are two divergent scenarios of which we are uh, crossing back and forth right now in this present time. And we have a choice in the matter here, we being the public. Uh, we could choose either of these two paths or some variation thereof. And it seems all the paths uh, that are, are coming to fruition right now are the more negative aspects uh, for the bulk of the masses, uh, so to say. Uh, so that being the case, we'll, we'll lay these things down and uh, I'll read through here. And as per usual, I will offer my insights into some of what is said here. So let's get right into it here. Chapter 7, Societal Choices and Consequences of Changing Images. <clears throat> Massive and rapid change confronts virtually every person and sector of our society. Paradoxically, such rapid change leading to future shock, in the words of Toffler, going to pause for a second, uh, that would be Alvin Toffler. If you're not familiar with this guy, pick up some of his books. It's very interesting reading. It's a little bit dry, right? But... Uh, the ideas laid down by Toffler are extremely important, and one of his major works was called Future Shock. Uh, that's actually the name of one of his books, where he laid down uh, many of these ideas. So uh, that's who they're referring to here when they're saying Toffler. Uh, so let's, let's continue with that sentence there. Paradoxically, such rapid change leading to Future Shock, in the words of Toffler, seems to be the only constant of our time. This change has contributed to a contemporary feeling of purposelessness and meaninglessness. And then it gives a couple of little notes down here under that. It creates uncertainty about the future and lessens the time durability of our images of humankind. Associated with this change has been the emergence of a societal structure of virtually incomprehensible size and complexity. Also, corresponding to this rapid change has been a proliferation of segmented roles for the individual to play, supported by fragmented imagery. Such rapid rates and magnitudes of change would be tolerable to many people if it seemed purposeful. Indeed, as Gerald Hurd once noted, life does not comf need comfort when it can be offered meaning, nor pleasure when it can be shown purpose. 
Since a primary function of images is to provide meaning in life, our present alienation and loss of purpose is reflective of the inability of contemporary images to inspire within people a feeling of meaningfulness. And I'm going to pause right there for a moment. You see, it's all about meaning, right? And, and this was something that uh, Friedrich Nietzsche spoke about. Uh, his major concern when he was uh, speaking on uh, various aspects of things of this nature is he was concerned that man would fall into this feeling of meaninglessness or purposelessness, right? Uh, and that we would tend towards nihilism that way. Uh, so he had uh, um, talked about that in various aspects. Uh, so the uh, the whole premise here is the same thing that they're touching upon in this book, okay? That uh, it would seem in our modern era that uh, this this feeling of meaninglessness or purposeless, purposelessness uh, permeates our culture. Uh, so let, let's read on and see what else they have to say. And this is a direct reflection of the images that they present to man to shape man's mind. So uh, let's read on. Many of the different images that we have surveyed provided differing normative standards from which to evaluate ethical decisions. Precisely because different conceptual paradigms provide differing standards for evaluation, it is not possible to prove that one image of humankind is ultimately better or more valid than another. It is therefore useful to compare the likely societal outcomes of the different images. And there's a little footnote down here that says... But you can prove that one is held more frequently than another through the use of survey research. An image of man survey of what is and what ought to be parallel to hopes and fears of the American people in 1972 should be conducted. And remember, this, this book was written, I believe, in the originally in the late 1960s, and this was rehashed in the 1980s, this, this version of it, if I'm not mistaken. I think it was started in the late 60s and came to fruition throughout all of the 70s and uh, went to print in 1980, if I'm not mistaken. But uh, let's continue on here. <clears throat> we choose to compare the societal consequences of two images, both of which seem feasible within the near-term future of the United States, each of which would lead to a very different type of future. So I'm going to pause for a moment there. So essentially, the, this study group came to... Uh, the conclusion that there's two possible scenarios that seemed likely here. Two different images of man that could be portrayed and used to steer the social norms of the age that uh, we are stepping into now. Uh, so that that's essentially what they did. And who made these people, uh, you know, in charge of that, right? And that's the major question we have about a lot of this stuff. You get all of these think tank groups together, and they start... Uh, you know, making decisions for the bulk of humanity that they have no business doing, right? These are not elected officials. These are not our representatives. They're people that think they are intellectually superior to you and that they know what's best for you. And they decided this is the way we're going to steer or engineer humanity. All right. <coughs> Excuse me. So let's let's continue reading here and we'll, we'll keep that in mind and we'll, we'll see just how this is worded, right? And I always caution people, always pay close attention to the words that they use to describe different aspects of things in these, these papers and books and things like that, that they use as social engineering tropes. Uh, because the wording and the phraseology they use is always very telling. Uh, so, you know, that being the case, let's, let's continue on. 
One of these is based on an extrapolation of the images that underlay the industrial state, i.e. it portends a post-industrial future with individual images of the human. The other is based on a transformed image of the human, similar to that we have postulated as being needed for a desirable post-industrial society. In creating such an idealized polarity or dialectic, we do not expect that either will come to pass in a pure form, but rather hope that a clear-cut contrast between possibilities will foster a continuing debate which will in itself help create a more responsible future society. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Uh, So essentially what they're saying is they want to create a dialectic, right? This two-sided argument give you these two choices. Uh, that they're going to try and engineer you back and forth between to steer you in a direction towards the ultimate purpose that they want, right? This is the society that they want. They want some kind of a combination of these, uh, you know, opposing dialectic attributes in this society. And we'll get to exactly what they're talking about here in a minute uh, because we'll we'll see how uh, there are certain choices that uh, we as a civilization are on the cusp of having to make here, right? And it starts at the individual level. So uh, we can't necessarily affect uh, all of society uh, as a a massive structure here. But we can affect the things we do and how we react to things, right? On an individual level. And all decision-making starts at the individual level. So if enough individuals step up and say, hey, I don't like this idea, we're going to go another way with this, then you know what? All their plans fall apart and crumble underneath the weight of all their scheming and planning here. Uh, And and we'll see what they have in mind, right? And a lot of these people were, uh, you know, purely researchers who were interested in learning about humanity and human behavior and things like that. But uh, ultimately, they're contributing to a type of control system, whether they realize it or not. And I would argue many of them realize it. And we'll see as we read on here uh, some indication that they do understand that. Right? So let's read on here. Contrasting future trends and images. The nature of a future based on continuing dominance of the industrial state mentality is aptly characterized by a distillation of the multifold trend developed at the Hudson Institute. Hudson Institute, sorry, I can't talk tonight. At the Hudson Institute and described earlier. It envisions a society with the following developmental trends. And I'm going to pause for a second. Pay attention very closely to what uh, these trends are. Uh, there, there's seven points here, and uh, pay attention. And this is one of their visions of the future, okay? Just one of the two visions, and we'll see there are some stark differences between the two, but there's also some things that kind of gel a little bit. Uh, and we'll, we could see, actually, when we look around at society today, we could actually uh, understand uh, how these things have been engineered into our society today. Uh, We could recognize these things going on in society around us. Uh, So pay attention here. So let's, let's get into that. It envisions a society with the following developmental trends. Number one, increasingly empirical, secular, pragmatic, manipulative, explicitly rational, utilitarian. Going to pause for a second. That was number one. Notice they use the word manipulative, right? Uh, Is that a desirable trait? 
uh, for, uh, say, some type of a social order. It's manipulative. It manipulates people. Uh, <laughs> I, I don't think it is, right? Uh, let's, let's continue on. Number two, centralization and concentration of economic and political power. Well, don't we see that all around us today, right? Uh, so this, this is one of the, the contrasting points we'll get to later. Uh, but let's continue on. Number three, continued rapid accumulation of scientific and technical knowledge. Okay, well, that one's a no-brainer, right? That one seems to be uh, a necessity, right, uh, for advancing further here societally. We, we need to uh, rapidly accumulate more scientific and technical knowledge. Um, but this, this disregards spiritual things in many aspects here, but uh, that's beside the point. But let's continue on. Number four, increasing reliance upon specialists and, and, and this is in quotation marks, folks, and knowledge elites, despite anti-intellectual trends. I'm uh, going to pause there for a second. Looking around at society today, don't they regard many of the things we talk about as anti-intellectual trends, right? Things like questioning uh, the authoritative viewpoint of things, questioning the size and shape and structure of the earth, questioning the medical model we've been handed, questioning these uh, authority models we've been given, questioning these social narratives that are pushed out by mainstream media that we've been given. This is called anti-intellectualism by these people, right? So uh, despite that, uh, they, they say that uh, they need increased reliance upon specialists or knowledge elites, and that's their own term for it, elites. These people in the white lab coats, the Dr. Fauci's of the world, that are the all-knowing guru of any particular thing and will tell you how it is and you better accept it or else you're an anti-intellectual. Uh, so that's we see that going on largely here in society as well. Uh, so we have four points so far we're up to that we could recognize in the world around us. Let's continue on. <clears throat> Number five, increasing affluence and the institutionalization of leisure. I'm going to pause there. What exactly does that mean, increasing affluence and the institutionalization of leisure? Well, we do see that to a certain degree in our society, don't we? This affluence, this uh, wealth, this acquisition of wealth and, uh, you know, social prominence, things like that. And the institutionalization of leisure. Uh, this would be, you know, uh, hey, I bought tickets to the Super Bowl, right? Uh, it, it's, it's your leisure. It's the institutionalization of it. They've steered it into business models, right, uh, where you can, uh, you know, pursue these different entertainment interests that you like and all for a cost right uh, they've, they've turned it into an entire business model so once again this is something we recognize to a certain degree they've given us uh you know to a point here up until the course of the past two years or so uh, we've been allowed to actually uh, uh, accumulate some level of wealth right uh, more so than has really been a, a thing in the past and it we have we have had more disposable income on our hands where we are able to use this institutionalized form of leisure at you know at whatever means that uh, we want so uh, that that's a thing and a lot of that has been whittled away now the past two years 
but uh, that's that's also a part of things to come too. But uh, we recognize this as well in society, don't we? Let's move on to the next one, number six. Increasing use of social, economic, political, and behavioral engineering. I don't think I need to put a fine point on this one, folks. I'm just going to repeat that sentence again. Number six, increasing use of social, economic, political, and behavioral engineering. That's right. They have engineered our behaviors. They've engineered our socialization. They've engineered our economy into the shape that it is. And they've engineered our political realm into the shape that it is. And it's all a three-ring circus, right? It was made this way on purpose. It's part of the plan. See? It's right here in black and white in front of me. I'm reading it to you. This is their words, not mine. Uh, Let's continue on. Number seven. Increasing urban concentration and the emergence of megalopolitan regional urban areas. So I'm going to pause there. This one may not have come to fruition exactly just yet, but this is your smart cities. They were talking about smart cities in the 1970s. That's what this is. That's exactly what they're they're, they're outlining here. Uh, so we see these trends happening in our world around us. And uh, we know now, I mean, looking at this, this has been planned. This has been engineered. This has gone beyond just planning or speculating about uh, what the future would look like or, or even a prediction. This is a playbook, folks. This is, you know, one of the tools that they use to engineer society into a shape that they want. Uh, but let's continue on with the reading. So that was just the first portion here. Um, so let's read on and see what it says next. This trend set might well be termed a technological extrapolationist future. An image of humankind that is supportive of this future would likely have the following characteristics. Now pay close attention again here, folks. One, the individual by nature is aggressive and competitive, largely determined in his behavior by hereditary and environmental forces. Number two, the group is emphasized to the relative detriment of individualism. Number three, sexuality, territoriality, materialism, rationalism, and secularism are emphasized. Number four, there is an increased demand for and implied reliance upon technological solutions to our societal problems and upon centralized regulation of technology application to provide needed controls. Okay, so I'm going to pause there. So after those four points, right, uh, we see, okay, the, the group is emphasized and uh, in, to the detriment of individualism, right? Uh, this is largely what's going on in society today. It's all about the group, right? It's all about being part of the clique, part of the crowd. It's all about the social good, right? The, the, the public good, public health, all of these different ideas caught up in that. Uh, these, these different ideas that are pushed uh, about sexuality, territoriality, materialism, secularism, rationalism. These things are all emphasized at the expense of any kind of spiritual uh, concerns, right? And and that's the bottom line here. It's a step into materialism. Uh, that's, that's what's being engineered here, and that's what they're talking about. And they're saying that uh, these would be the, the characteristics of that future world that we just spoke about. And don't we see everything aligning with that? 
but now we're going to get into another concept here. And here's the contrast where it comes in. This is a second portion of uh, what the future could possibly look like uh, that they got into here. So let's read on. Contrasting rather sharply with the foregoing trends and supportive image is a cluster of trends that is compatible with the characteristics postulated as described in Chapter 5. Okay, we're going to pause there. We're not going to go back to Chapter 5 and look, but uh, essentially up until this point, up until Chapter 7, they've discussed all of these ideas in detail and uh, have, have taken a run at them, but they're kind of just uh, putting them all together here. Uh, to articulate a certain idea as to what the future could and should look like, right? Uh, so that's what they were doing here. They were spitballing ideas in the previous chapters, and now they're putting them all together in an engineered type of a structure. Uh, so that, that's what this is saying. So let's, let's read on. <coughs> These trends and supportive image might lead to what could be termed an evolutionary transformationalist future. This future does not assume the logical extension of existing societal trends as does the technological extrapolationist view. Rather, it presumes a substantial departure from current trends with the following trend characteristics resulting. And I'm going to pause for a second. So notice they like to use all these big jargony words, don't they? Uh, so they're talking about two possible future scenarios here at the time. They're talking about uh, what they termed the technological extrapolationist view, uh, which largely lines up with what we're seeing going on in the world today, as we had just discussed. And now this next point they're talking about, they call evolutionary transformationalist future, right? Uh, they love to use these big, <laughs> big words uh, to describe things. It's all about a lot of jargon and uh, it, it's all nonsense. It's all to impress each other and pat each other on the back. Oh, we're so smart. We use such big words. Uh, so, but essentially, uh, so now they're contrasting these two different future scenarios that they're looking at uh, for being engineered here. So let's let's continue on here and see which characteristics are resultant uh, from this, uh, what they would call the uh, evolutionary transformationalist future. Uh, so this is what the uh, characteristics are. Number one, increasingly balanced between dimensions such as empirical, intuitive, manipulative, pan-determined, rational, intuitive, utilitarian, aesthetic. So I'm going to pause there. So basically it's saying that uh, this uh, societal norm would have a good balance between these different ideas, right? Uh, that uh, there would be this, this type of... Uh, this type of uh, societal structure wherein these things were, were well balanced together. We don't see that, do we? So this is a contrast uh, from where it is right now because we see everything's been polarized uh, in the world that we live in in very uh, obvious ways. Uh, so that being the case, this offers a more balanced look at the future, a more practical look at the future in these different ideas. So that's what they're claiming would be, uh, you know, one of the aspects of this type of transformationalism. So let's, let's read on. Number two, stabilizing population. Decentralization of urban areas so that population is distributed with greater balance, a greater diversity of living environments to express a larger range of lifestyle alternatives. Gonna pause there. This is also something we don't see, right? This whole idea of, uh, uh, people spreading out over broader areas 
this is not something that we see. They're trying to centralize everything towards these smart city ideas, as we discussed in the, the first uh, motive, uh, modus operandi that they gave here, so to say. This, this first structure that they gave for society, this first view as the future image of man. So, uh, you know, it talks about this stabilizing population bit. Uh, and once again, this draws back on some of the, the overarching ideas of, uh, you know, the, the population's too big. There's only f this finite amount of natural resources, this kind of thing. The whole artificial scar scarcity model. Well, this, this would be something I think would be, that would be a better way forward, right? And I think they've acknowledged this, that one way... Uh, well, they said that one way isn't necessarily better than the other, but as far as what the public would think, I would think this is a better way, more decentralized, population spread out more, right? More, more diversity and happiness for the people, rather than being crammed in a large city center and uh, stressed out uh, in that environment, because human beings, we, we were never intended to live in massive social groups like that, right? Uh, that, that goes against the natural way of things. Uh, we've always been kind of tribal, yes, and lived in different civilization groups and things like that. But never in massive cities. Man was never intended to live in massive cities like that. Uh, so, you know, that being the case, I, I think this would be a better way forward. Uh, but this is the contrast, right? We're not seeing that right now. Uh, so we kind of have an inkling as to where things are going. But let's read on here because there's a couple more points. Number three, increasing affluence for a time, but then tending toward a steady state society without substantial income wealth differentials, a do more with less technology, more creative participative leisure activities. And I'm going to pause there. So this is actually, this sounds like a talking point for the World Economic Forum, doesn't it? This is socialism. That's what this is talking about. Increasing affluence for a time, right? We've seen that. Okay, they've, they've given us that era wherein uh, we could build wealth and influence over time. Uh, but now that's, that's crashing and it's tending towards what they call a steady state society uh, with no major differentials in wealth or income levels, right? This is socialism. That's what this is describing. And it's also describing the uh, you will own nothing and you'll be happy, right? It's always that way. And it's talking about do more with less technology uh, and uh, more creative, participative leisure activities. Uh, this is the metaverse idea uh, being built into this as well. Uh, so let's, let's continue on here. So we could see how that one kind of aligns with things going on. Number four, a de decrease in the use of social, economic, political, and behavior engineering, except where this was, a ch was chosen by a group as the preferable mode of organizing and directing life activities within their societal subsystem. And I'm going to pause there. This is a loaded phrase. Let's read that again. A decrease in the use of social, economical, political, and behavior engineering, except where this was chosen by a group as the preferable mode of organizing and directing life activities within their societal subsystem. Well, who's going to make that choice, folks? I'll tell you who. It's the elite. So you can see how some of these ideas contrast with the, the other ones, and you can see where they align with the other ones as well. And these, form, these last two are ones that align with that. 
Uh, so, you know, that being the case, we could understand uh, that kind of thing. Uh, let's continue on here. So, number five. Increasing reliance upon specialized and general holistic skills of quote-unquote knowledge elites with greater legitimization and use of divergent thinking, also greater participation in the planning processes. So I, I think that one is self-explanatory, right? Uh, that uh, this kind of thing, that these knowledge elites, once again, the whole idea, uh, this small group of wise men, right? The small group of wise men will lead us and tell us what to do. And uh, that's what this is, uh, you know, kind of pointing to. Let's read on. Number six, continued accumulation of scientific and technical knowledge, but of a sort which fits within the framework of a new moral paradigm. <laughs> so, okay, I'm going to pause for a second there. Moral paradigm. All right. Continued accumulation of scientific and technical knowledge, but that fits into a framework of a new moral paradigm. Uh, what kind of a moral paradigm are they talking about? One that lacks morals, in my view. Uh, that's what we see going on today, right? Next point, number seven. Decentralization and deconcentration of economic and political power to allow full-valued participation of people in their political and productive processes. And this is the mantra that was used to uh, springboard the idea of cryptocurrency, right? Decentralization. Well... Do you see what's been happening with cryptocurrency as of late, folks? It's the same old thing. Uh, they're trying to regulate it now. It's becoming centralized. This decentralized utility is now being centralized once again uh, towards uh, some other goal here. Uh, you see how governments and stuff have stepped in and tried to regulate cryptocurrency. And you see the harm that's being done because of this overreach by governments into this system. And this was the original thing that was touted by the whole crypto system. It's decentralized, right? It's a decentralized utility. You don't have to, uh, you know, have uh, be in the, the main system to, to use this, right? And that was the thing that was attractive about it. So you see how they've taken the idea of decentralizing something and twisting it on its head and turning it into something that uh, sounds attractive on the surface, but uh, when it's actually utilized, uh, it becomes very much contorted into something harmful to the masses, right, rather than good for them. Uh, so let's read on here. An image of humankind that would be supportive of this trend cluster would likely have the following characteristics. Now pay attention closely here. 1. The individual's behavior is determined partly by hereditary or biological and environmental social sources, which can be for either good or ill, but also there is a significant potential within the individual for behavior which is free from such deterministic influences. Number two, the individual has primacy, but there are recognized needs of the societal system for its own maintenance as a supportive environment for individual growth and actualization. Number three, thus, the self, along with social structures, evolves towards higher states of awareness, such that societal and individual diversity is hopefully integrated at a higher order of complexity, and self becomes an experiential concept, having transpersonal as well as individual aspects. Next, 
Number four, an emphasis upon loving sexuality leading to a de-emphasis of possessiveness. And I'm going to pause there, folks. Uh, so you see what's been done here, how society has been engineered uh, with this whole gender bending uh, agenda and stuff like that that's been going on. Uh, it's the same thing, right? It, it's all about uh, sexualizing everything in a certain way and in so doing leading us away from what they call possessiveness or this would actually be strong relationships strong bonds monogamous bonds right they're trying to lead us away from that uh this this goes against um most of the uh moral values that uh, have largely constituted the western culture uh for as long as we've been around uh, so they're, they're tending things away from more spiritual ideas once again. Let's read on here. Next, rationalism and secularism are balanced by an equal regard for the significance of the intuitive and spiritual. And that's a total joke, folks, because they don't seem to be balancing any of that, right? For the spiritual or intuitive. In fact, they're trying to engineer that out of humanity, uh, it would seem. And lastly, an implied reliance is placed upon the individual's alteration of internal states for the solution of many societal problems. Clearly, the technological extrapolationist and evolutionary transformationalist images present, present us with sharp contrasts, both direct and in terms of the societal trends they support. The plausibility of each of these divergent images can be partially inferred from an examination of the potency of their historical roots. These are presented in the next table here, and uh, it's contrasted with the ethical attributes that we might associate with these two images. With this as a background, we now consider the societal consequences that would accrue in the technological extrapolationist and the evolutionary transformationalist futures. Once again, using their gigantic big words. They like to pat themselves on the back for using all this jargon. Uh, so let's take a look at the historical roots of the technological extrapolationalist image. And I'll remind you, this largely looks like the one that we've been steered into uh, right now. Uh, so let's let's keep this in mind. And these are the ideas uh, that kind of undergird that whole principle that they've steered us into. This is a model, okay? This is a model of the society they want that they've engineered us into. And it's based upon these next several points. Number one, Hobbesian man. Hobbes saw humankind as elaborate machines whose vital motions were determined by outward stimuli. One seeks the power to ensure the continuation of favorable stimuli, and in that egoistic concern one comes into strong conflict with other people acting in like manner. What is required to ensure peace is a sovereign with absolute power over the citizenry. And I'm going to pause there. So Hobbes says man is like a machine and needs a ruler with absolute power over the machine. Right? Uh, so we, we could see that, uh, you know, a lot of this has been inferred in the things going on. Uh, this is why the elite set themselves up in such a way. They want to be that ruler, right? That sovereign with absolute power over the citizenry. Let's continue on. Number two, the economic man. 
is a rationalistic, able to calculate what will maximize one's utility, self-centered, acquisitiveness constrained only by the self-seeking of others, mechanistic, a factor in the production process, individualistic, responsible for taking care of oneself, and materialistic, with an overriding concern for one's own material welfare. So that's economic man. That has led into this uh, extrapolation here, too. Number three, Freudian man. Freud saw people as being driven by the dual instinctual forces of Eros, the sex drive, and Thanatos, the will to destruction of self, or, when turned outward, the will to aggression. Civilization suppresses these potential, potentially destructive instincts, and in doing so, it increases the individual's internal tensions. Therefore, civilization is bought at the price of an increase in personal frustration. Number four. The ideological man, an aggressive animal with a veneer of civilization holding this aggression back. Man is instinctually programmed from his hunter origins towards war, destruction, and territoriality, and this cannot be unlearned or outgrown, but can be sublimated, redirected, or repressed. This any civilized society must do. Number five, behavioristic man. One's actions are completely determined by hereditary and environmental factors. A recent emphasis is upon behavior modification through a stimulus reinforcement response process. Freedom and dignity are thought to be the illusory constructs of an individual who views himself as having autonomy. The survival, survival of a culture is likely dependent on the systematic shaping of human behavior. So, we see here from these five points that uh, uh, mankind here has been engineered into this type of behavior, right? And, and we see, who does it benefit? Who does it benefit? Well, it benefits the elite, doesn't it? Uh, these, these controllers, this small group, this controlling factor in this world. Um, so, let's continue on here, and we'll wrap it up real soon here. Societal consequences of a technological extrapolationist image. Assuming that the cluster of societal trends and images identified under the rubric of technological extrapolation becomes dominant in our society, what might the likely consequences be? Our society suffers from fundamental problems which are intrinsic to the very structure of mature industrialism. The cluster of multifold trends embodied in the extrapolationist perspective will likely exacerbate these problems. Indeed, given the present nature of our societal problems, we can expect, here we go, number one, continued acceleration of industrial development through massive transnational corporations, which, because they transcend national boundaries, will be difficult or impossible to regulate adequately. And don't we see that? Corporation rules it all, doesn't it? Number two, intensification of ecological problems and a marathon com competition to exploit vanishing resources. And I'm going to pause for a second there. So once again, uh, bringing into view the whole scarcity argument, the artificial scarcity argument, as well as the whole, uh, you know, climate change agenda, right? Uh, this is all engineered into this. Number three, increasing discrepancies in the distribution of affluence. Well, that would be wealth, folks. Uh, so discrepancies in the uh, distribution of wealth. Well, what have we seen going on in the world in the past two years? The, uh, the, the top wealthiest people of this world 
have acquired more wealth now than ever before. It's been the largest transfer of wealth in the history of the world. There it is. It's been engineered to happen this way. Number four, intensification of revolutions of rising expectations and of strife among interest groups. Well, don't we see that all over the place right now? Number five, increasing danger of sabotage and increasing concern for personal and institutional security, development of new security technologies. And this is like reading out of the headlines today, isn't it? If, if you want to like go at these ideas one-on-one -on -one here, it's like looking at the headlines. Number, number seven, a shift from basic research to applied research and development. Okay, well, this, uh, you know, this, this is kind of a, largely a given, isn't it? Because uh, it's all about developing the new technologies faster. And haven't we seen that with Operation Warp Speed and various other things? Uh, so it's a shift from basic research to applied research and development. Uh, so they, they do this on a, a very fast uh, timeline anymore. Next, increasingly unwieldy urban agglomerations whose political, financial, and total systemic stability becomes uncertain. So, that being the case, uh, next... Increasing dominance of institutional needs over human needs. And doesn't that just say it all? As corporations and big businesses have taken uh, precedence over individuals, haven't they? Uh, and we see all these interest groups in the political structure uh, doing this. Increasingly questioned legitimacy of the entire socioeconomic system. Well... What am I doing here tonight? I'm questioning the entire socioeconomic system, right? And I'm looking at this. This is in their own words. This is what they developed. This is what's been planned into existence here in this world, folks. So it may not be the most exciting message to hear, but I think you need to understand that uh, what's been done to mankind, what a lowly state we're in. Uh, and and here we are, here we sit, and people are more concerned about being entertained than actually learning something valuable, right? People are more concerned with being entertained than learning something valuable. And this this is the true state of mankind. It's it's sad. It's sad. This may not be the message you want to hear. It might be more fun to go listen to something else. But uh, bottom line is, this is what you need to hear. This is not what you want to hear necessarily, right? It, it might be a little boring or contrite to you, uh, but uh, you need to understand the level of planning that has gone into the way society's been engineered. So that being the case, I'm going to continue on here, and we're almost finished. What kind of society might emerge? On the one hand, our wisdom and good luck could combine with ineptitude and misfortune in such a way as to cause our nation to just about break, even in our efforts to deal with the growing problems. There may be, though it appears unlikely, neither disastrous failures nor remarkable successes. Our shortcomings could be offset by the traditional poultice of an increasing income for the majority, a greater amount of time for leisure pursuits, and the certainty of a greater quantity and variety of goods and services to be consumed. And I'm going to pause there. Uh, doesn't some of this sound like what's happened the past two years to a certain degree? 
And it was a remarkable failure, wasn't it? <laughs> Rather than a remarkable success. Uh, so <laughs> let's, let's continue on. On the other hand, it seems entirely plausible that these trends could exacerbate our social or societal problems and bring demands for immediate and drastic solutions to ensure the stability and survival of the society. Methods of regulation that severely reduce individual freedoms could be welcomed in the face of severe disruptions. We could quickly, or more likely, gradually emerge into the kind of society that Bertram Gross has, has termed friendly fascism. This is a fascism that will come under the slogans of democracy and 100% Americanism in the form of an advanced technological society supported by its techniques, a techno-urban fascism American style. And that's Gross as he described it from his book, that he wrote in 1970, Bertram Gross. Here it is, page 44. He described it as this, from page 44 of his book. A new form of garrison state, or totalitarianism, built by older elites to resolve the growing conflicts of post-industrialism. More specifically, a managed society which rules by a faceless and widely dispersed complex of warfare, welfare, industrial communications, police, bureaucracies, caught up in developing a new-style empire based on a technocratic ideology, a culture, of a, a culture of alienation, multiple scapegoats, and competing control networks. Pluralistic in nature, techno-urban fascism would need no charismatic dictator, no one-party rule, no mass fascist party, no glorification of the state, no dissolution of legislatures, no discontinuation of elections, no distrust of reason. This style of management and planning would not be limited to the economy. It would deal with the political, social, cultural, and technological aspects of society as well. The key theme, therefore, would not be the managed economy, but rather the managed society. And there's emphasis on that. And, uh, there's a footnote here that says a somewhat later and considerably more scholarly piece by Gross contrasting techno-urban fascism versus humanist reconstruction is offered in a lengthy essay, Planning in an Era of Social Revolution, Public Administration Review from May-June 1971. Uh, Gross is also writing a book on friendly fascism to be published in late 1974. Uh, so this was written prior to 1974. I think the, the uh, original publication date of this study was 1972, and it was reprinted and put out to the public in 1980. Uh, it says, The book finally appeared in 1980 and is a most sobering appraisal of now-current trends. Uh, so I'm going to look up this guy, uh, this guy whose name is uh, Bertram Gross and Friendly Fascism, because did he not explain exactly what society looks like today? right now. Does he not? Hmm. Let's read on here. What conditions would be required for such a pernicious future to emerge out of the extrapolation of the present? We think the following. Number one, the need. Our societal problems might combine with the multifold trend to create the need for such a friendly sort of totalitarianism. Perhaps this feeling of benign need was presaged in a recent statement by the White House Chief of Telecommunications, 
A great many people in 1984 like what Big Brother was doing because he was doing it in their interest and concern. <laughs> so, and this is from an American White House chief of telecommunications back in 1973. Uh, they said that a great many people in the book 1984 liked what Big Brother was doing because he was doing it in their interest and concern. And this is the attitude these people have towards us, folks. This is what I've been trying to communicate to you, right? This, this stuff's been going on for a long time. It's all been planned and engineered this way. The way society is going right now, it's been engineered into this state. Let's read on. Number two, the ability. Although one may fault the metaphysical implications of behavior modification, one cannot deny that it works. I'm going to read that sentence again. Although one may fault the metaphysical implications of behavior modification, one cannot deny that it works. Today, we are seeing the rapid emergence of psychotechnologies, which could efficiently shape and modify patterns of behavior as well as motivational and emotional states. This could take the form of directed emotional conditioning in childhood, objectively constructed reinforcement patterns in adult life, the use of a wide variety of drugs, electrical brain implants, the modification of genetic makeup to activate different human potentials, the use of sophisticated electronic surveillance mechanisms to detect aberrant behavior patterns. I'm going to pause there. What do we see in society today? We see all of these things. How dystopian is our society right now, folks? I, I swear some days we're living in a bad science fiction novel, right? I, I never in a million years had you told me this stuff 30 years ago, uh, that this is how it was going to be. I would not believe it. Uh, but here we are, right? Here we are. And these people had this plan since at least 1972, which was the original publication of this this uh, project here. So, uh, you know, just, just to give you a little context, it, it, this has been going on a long time. They, they've engineered these things. This was the engineering of the society they wanted. They're bringing it to fruition now. And in so doing, they're destroying the human spirit. That's what's going on. It's spiritual warfare at the most basic level. And, uh, you know, by and large... People are, are falling into this trap, aren't they? Uh, like I said, like I said earlier, where people are more concerned with superficial, redundant things that don't really matter in the grand scheme of things. They're not concerned with learning important facts or, you know, learning something useful that will benefit them. Uh, they're not they're not interested, right? They're not interested in shaping their future, their own future, or the future of their offspring. They're not concerned. They want to let somebody else do it. Well, we've become so complacent as a, a society that uh, this is what's happened. You've, you've had these these people, these quote-unquote elites, uh, who refer to themselves as the elites, as, you know, is borne out in this 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 book right here that I'm reading from. Uh, they, they've taken control. If you've abdicated your personal responsibility and power, they've picked it up for you. They'll, they'll do your thinking for you. That's what's been going on. People got lazy and complacent. They don't want to think or take responsibility or have to do something. Right? They would rather have somebody else do it for them. That's what's going on. 
And there are people in positions of power in this world today that have taken advantage of that. And you know what? When they tell you you'll own nothing and you'll be happy, they're probably right, aren't they? Uh, look at society, right? Look at what's going on. We've abdicated our personal responsibility, our personal will, to others to tell us what to do, to direct us. That we've allowed them to engineer us socially into this position that we're in today. And, uh, you know, it's, it's a very telling thing that uh, so few will actually sit down and seriously consider this information or listen to it. They would rather go find entertainment out there somewhere. They would rather keep their minds occupied with idle nonsense rather than have to think about these things, the implications of this, or, you know, to actually speak up and do something, to actually have to do something about it. And, and that's a shame, folks. It really, truly is. Uh, but let's continue on here. Because there's more. But wait, there's more. Number three, a supportive image of man. The use of and dependence upon such psychotechnologies might well lead gradually to a pernicious form of the extrapolationist image of man. This is plausible, plausible in a self-validating way since many aspects of the current form of the extrapolationist image seem supportive of the increasing use and dependence upon these technologies. Man is viewed as a sophisticated machine. Therefore, master human nature as we have mastered physical nature. Man is thought to be largely determined in his behavior. Therefore, objectively shape his behavior in the most efficient way. Man is innately antisocial. Therefore, restrain antisocial tendencies with the aid of new technologies. Individual man is subordinate to the needs of the collective, therefore impose upon the individual whatever is to the benefit of the larger society. And I'm going to pause right there. Do I need to extrapolate on that anymore, folks? They're, they, like they, they've actually given, uh, you know, these, these different... Uh, different aspects of the image that they want to support for man. This is how they want man to behave. And they're telling these, whoever's reading this paper, these controllers, these social engineers, how to do it, right? They're saying here that, uh, you know, they're, they're looking at man. They see him as being little more than a sophisticated machine. Uh, so, you know, they're, they're saying that man has largely predetermined behaviors, so to objectively shape his behavior in an efficient way. And they're also saying man's innately antisocial, so therefore restrain his antisocial tendencies with the aid of new technologies. And that's largely what's gone on the past two years, hasn't it, folks? They've, they've taken advantage of this uh, condition of human nature where human beings at times like to be antisocial. They don't like to have to go out and interact with the crowd, so to say. They don't want to have to deal with other people if it's if it's not easy or convenient. So what did they do? Well, they used technologies to make this a more feasible thing for people to be antisocial. So rather than going out every day and going to work at the office, well, you just hop on your computer and you do a teleconference and it takes up less of your time and you don't have to interact with the people and everybody's happy, right? They've engineered this into society right now. Do you see the way that they manipulate? And, and, and it's admitted. This is all in black and white. Like, I, 
I, I just don't know what else to say. Here's their plan. I'm giving you the playbook, the plan. I, I'm telling you exactly what it is that they wanted to engineer in society and how they've done it and demonstrating that it's it's here right now. And we can turn it around, but nobody's listening. Nobody's listening, right? Because we're more concerned with uh, nonsense, essentially. Uh, you know, people are more concerned with nonsense, they don't care. It's the complacency has been so indoctrinated and and driven into us that it's staggering. It's staggering, right? Uh, all these people that claim to be awake and aware, and uh, you know that uh, don't want to go down this road, but yet here we are, right? Here we are. Let's read on. So next, number four. We only got to the fourth point here. The acquiescence. Many psychotechnologies are already in limited use in our society, and they would appear to be quite palatable to the general public if they were assimilated gradually while being couched in the appropriate language, e.g. rather than discuss the control of emotional and motivational states, we can talk of ensuring peace and harmony by modifying the behavior of those irrational persons who threaten the stability and security of our society. So do you see what they're doing to us, folks? Now let's continue on here. We're almost done. Bear with me for a little while longer. Because this is important, okay? So, uh, if you know, if you would rather listen to something nonsensical that's not going to have any value in your life whatsoever, um, you know, that's, that's your prerogative. But uh, if you want to learn a little something about what's been done and how it's been done and how maybe we could change things and fight back against this, then pay attention because, uh, you know, there's, there's still some important points that need to be pointed out here. Uh, let's continue on. Corton, in 1967, examined the possibility of widespread use of such processes and concluded, If these protective and avoidance patterns are greatly extended in the future, one can imagine a society that allows widespread use of drugs to prevent pain and anxiety, brain surgery to prevent both suffering and any aggressive actions by individuals, and extensive use of monitoring equipment to restrict individual behavior with a destructive potential. There are already signs of the emergence of key elements in Gross's friendly fascist scenario. Number one, the application of military surveillance technologies to urban police problems. And then, remember, this was 1972, okay? Uh, and, and I would say, you know, the application of surveillance technology to the masses. You carry it in your friggin' pocket, right? Number two, utilization of behavior-changing drugs and operant conditioning in schools. Well, haven't we seen that happen over the course of the past several decades? Hmm? Number three, government attempts at management of news. <laughs> so there it is. Government-controlled media, state-run media. Well, what do you know? Number four, personality screening and maintenance of files on pre-delinquent children through cooperation between elementary school administrations and local, state, and federal authorities. That's your permanent record, folks, right? And we, we see how many of these things have, uh, have really been engineered into our society in a big way these days. Number five, the cross-correlation of computer-based files containing personal data, e.g. credit, employment records, tax status, insurance, criminal record, education, 
And I'm going to pause there. Boy, uh, did they call that or what? Uh, now they're trying to uh, centralize all of these into a central database and tie it biometrically to your person, right? Uh, so it's all part of the plan. Number six, the introduction of legislation to control access to techniques for self-initiated alteration of consciousness, both non-drug and drug-induced. Well, isn't that an interesting turn of events? The introduction of legislation to control access to techniques for self-initiated alteration of consciousness. Hmm. Well, could this have something to do with technologies? Well, absolutely it can. Let's continue on. Although the above pictures an extreme outcome from the technological extrapolationist image and trend, nonetheless, it is an alternative future for the United States that is even now proving its feasibility by its growing emergence. This future would seem unintended to most people, yet by not rocking the boat and by pursuing what is a familiar societal path, it seems clear that we could reach a societal future which was quite different and far worse than was originally anticipated. This future is by no means inevitable, but it does confront us with profoundly important choices, both individual and collective. And there's a... <laughs> that, that's a mouthful, isn't it? I would say individual. This is where you need to... Draw your line in the sand, folks. All right? If you want the collective to make the decisions with you, well, you need to set the example. That's the problem. There's no adults left in the room at this point. Nobody's going to draw their line in the sand and stand their ground and say, no, I'm not moving. This is wrong. But the more of us that do that, the more people will stand up and agree because people know in their heart of hearts something is wrong. Something is inherently wrong with the way things are going in society. And no one will stand up and say, enough, enough, right? And this is part of the problem. We've been engineered into this compliance and complacency uh, in these various different ways, as has been discussed here. Don't we see? This is the exact fruition of exactly what they were talking about here Right, And this, this was a Stanford Institute study. These were social engineers. These were uh, policy planners. This was a think tank group headed by people like Margaret Mead and Joseph Campbell, sociologists, anthropologists, people who understood human behavior very well and made recommendations on how to steer the masses. This was a big deal, right? This, this whole study. And the whole thing's been taken and used to steer the behavior of the masses. And we see what's been conditioned into us now. And it's come to fruition before our very eyes today, 50 years later. This is what they engineered. This is exactly what they were looking for. And we're sliding down that trail even further. And nobody cares. I, I just don't know what to do anymore. I, I try to explain to people and show people... Hey, this is the future that's coming if we do nothing about this. And people are like, yeah, I understand, right? Yeah, this is no good, and, you know, we've got to stand against this and stuff. But uh, when it comes down to it, what are you doing about it? What is What are we doing about this, right? And I'm talking to myself as much as anybody else. Do we just keep going along to get along and get what we could get while we're here? Or do we actually take a stand? Do we, do we uh, you know make that line in the sand and not cross it. My line in the sand was the whole vaccination thing. 
that's that's where my line in the sand was folks i walked away from my corporate job uh you know as a result of all the things that had been engineered into society because i was not going to capitulate to that that was my ultimate line in the sand and i didn't cross it i stood my ground and i'm still standing my ground on that not gonna happen so uh that's the thing if enough people stand up and say no i'm not consenting to this i'm not doing it screw you uh you know regardless of the circumstances put your trust in in the creator in god he'll direct your paths he'll he'll see you through there's a better way right you don't have to capitulate to some of this and and these are the things that have been engineered into us and it's all about controlling people it's social control it's behavioral modification right they will coerce you and uh, convince you that you need to do this thing that you don't want to do but then you give in and you do it anyway right well this is wrong on a moral level on an ethical level on a fundamental level and they know it and we know it so why do we still let it happen that's the whole point here. Why do we let this happen? We can clearly see these scumbags outlined this very thing. They talked about how they're going to socially engineer the masses into this future. And here it is. They've fulfilled that. They've done it. And we're going to let them get away with this? Really? Nobody's going to stand up and say, hey, you know what? A bunch of, uh, you know, these elitist scumbags back in 1972 got together and put together a book. They did a, a research study where they decided which way they were going to steer humanity in the next 50 years. And they didn't consult with anybody as far as this goes. It's a small group of elites, right? They decided that they're a small group of elites and they're going to tell everybody else how to live and what to do. And that they're going to be in charge and they're going to steer this into this future. They picked two different future scenarios and decided to steer the masses in those directions and see what happened. And now this is what we got. We got the worst end of the stick with this whole thing. Uh, because this is where they purposely directed us because it benefits them. And not us, not the masses, right? Uh, so we, we could see what's happened here. But anyway, let's go ahead and we'll read on a little bit further here, and we're almost done. We'll wrap it up here very soon. So, societal consequences of an evolutionary transformationalist image. Now remember, this evolutionary transformationalist image, this is the other side of the coin that they were looking for as well. Uh, so this is the, the uh, allegedly good direction things could have gone. And we see the various uh, contrasting points between this one and the... Uh, technological avenue that they were pushing for so i think by and large what has happened is they've tried to engineer a combination of these two uh, types of uh, variances into the the narrative here into the, the the social structure so to say so let's read on here whereas the technological extrapolationist response represents the logical extension of currently dominant societal trends the evolutionary transformationalist response presumes a qualitative and quantitative departure from them however in the early stages at least the transition to an evolutionary transformationalist post-industrial society would create some degree of disruption and disorientation and i'm going to pause there so essentially they're trying to convince us that uh, this is the route that we're going to be going down, right? Uh, this evolutionary route.
all right? And then it's going to cause disruption and disorientation in society and uh, all kinds of upheaval. And haven't we seen that? Well, let's read on. Assume for a moment... Assume for a moment that the industrial state does have problems that are fundamentally unresolvable within the context of the present and further assume that the evolutionary transformationalist image points the way to a resolution of the difficulties engendered by the industrial era. It might seem that our society would welcome the coming of such a transition with open arms. More likely, we would welcome such a societal change no more than the Middle Ages welcomed Galilean science, no more than the neurotic welcomes the changes in perception and behavior necessary to extricate himself from his unhappy condition. Such a new image and the societal consequences it implies would be viewed as a real threat to the established order. The emphasis on inner exploration would look like escapism, and the new interest in psychic phenomena and spiritual experience would be put down as a return to the superstitions of a less scientific and more gullible age. The increased reliance on intuitive processes would be interpreted as an abandonment of rationalism. The shift in priorities away from material and towards spiritual values would appear as a weakening of the work ethic and as turning away from economic goals, imperiling both the state of the economy and the stability of economic institutions. The ethic of love and community would seem subversive to the national defense. Such interpretations would not be totally unrealistic, since the world in general is far from ready for such drastic value changes, and partial moves in these directions would likely be interpreted as weakness. And I'm going to pause there, folks. So everything that's good and right and spiritual here, they're saying here... Uh, man's not ready for. So you see how they're trying to defer the Great Awakening, uh, much like I've discussed before on many different programs and in my book. They're trying to defer the Great Awakening and go instead with the Great Reset, right? Treating man as a machine instead of as a spirit as he is, a spiritual being, right? So they're, they're disregarding spiritual ideas here because they don't think man's ready. Right, so these all oh so wise, you know, elites uh, have determined that uh, mankind, on average, is not ready for that type of spiritual ascension or that that kind of an awakening. So uh, we we had best go with this technological extrapolation here. Uh, so that that's that's what they determined essentially here, because all the things they're talking about here as the this evolutionary. Uh, uh, model that they give us well haven't they given justifications here in this last paragraph as to why that can't come about right that's exactly what they're saying so that they they see this as being viewed as a type of weakness right now we need to double down in the materialism is what they're stating here and that's why they've gone with this first model that we've been going through for the most part Let's read on, though, and see what else they have to say. At a more fundamental level, the implied responsibility of the individual for his own growth and development in the evolutionary transformationalist view can by itself evoke a resistance to entertaining this new image of humankind. Maslow, in 1962, described this phenomenon succinctly in a chapter entitled The Need to Know and the Fear of Knowing, and this is what he said. The great cause of much psychological illness is the fear of knowledge of oneself. 
We tend to be afraid of any knowledge that could cause us to despise ourselves or make us feel inferior, weak, worthless, evil, shameful. We protect ourselves and our ideal image of ourselves by repression and similar defenses, which are essentially techniques by which we avoid becoming conscious of unpleasant or dangerous truths. But there is another kind of truth we tend to evade. Not only do we hang on to our own psychopathology, but also we tend to evade personal growth because this, too, can bring another kind of fear, of awe, of feelings of weakness and inadequacy. And so we find another kind of resistance, a denying of our best side, of our talents, of our finest impulses, of our highest potentialities, of our creativeness. It is precisely the godlike in ourselves that we are ambivalent about, fascinated by the fearful... Uh, fascinated by the fearful of, motivated to, and defensive against, end quote. Thus, at both the individual and societal levels, the implications of an evolutionary transformationalist image are bound to engender strong resistance. So I'm going to pause here, folks. So they're saying that uh, it's society's fault at large, right? They're just not ready for that. Do you see the excuses that they use here as to why, even though this sounds like a more desirable uh, image for man to adopt and to work towards and to progress into, why instead they chose the other one? Do you hear their excuses here? Mankind's just not ready. Well, that's only because they've engineered us into this. And we've complacently marched along like good little sheep. And that's where the problem lies. We've become too comfortable, too complacent, and too trusting of these people that steer social agendas, right? We've become too trusting of our entertainment culture, because that's all we have. We're entertained. We're a highly entertained society. It's the old bread and circuses adage. Uh, we have enough food and we're entertained enough. We won't dare revolt, right? Well, that's what's gone on. We've been uh, led down this comfortable path for so long. We don't want to be inconvenienced by standing up for our rights or for standing up for what's right. We would rather just march complacently along and go along to get along and just, you know, live day by day and not worry about it. Let somebody else worry about it. That's above my pay grade, right? Do you understand what's gone on here? How we've given away our personal sovereignty, our personal responsibility, our personal power to somebody else. We've abdicated the role of ourselves. We've abdicated our free will to others. And now we're going to be reaping the rewards for that. Right? As a society. But here's the thing. As individuals, we could stand up and say no and separate ourselves from this. And there's nothing stopping us from doing that. And I think uh, at the end of the day, these people, these quote-unquote elites, this, this, you know, these people in positions of power that want to rule things, I think they respect that to a certain degree, right? They respect that, and they likewise fear that, and they will try to do their very best to squash that, but they will respect that nonetheless. But let's read on here. This would contribute to the disruption that inevitably accompanies a period of rapid societal change, such as the present transition from an industrial to some type of post-industrial society. And I'm going to pause there. The fourth industrial revolution, as Klaus calls it. Right? So this is, you know, more post-industrialism, so to say. Uh, the fourth industrial revolution. 
A paradoxical situation thus arises, even if the evolutionary transformationalist image is essential to a satisfactory resolution of the problems of advanced industrialism, actions designed to force the emergence of such a transformation could be socially disruptive. And I'm going to pause there. They're playing the bait-and-switch game here, folks. This is where they, they trump up their plausible deniability to all of this, right? So this is a veiled... Uh, type of uh, illusion here that uh, they they would much prefer to uh, push this evolution evolutionary transformationalist image uh, that this is what they they've aimed for in the things they're doing but see it's it's society's fault because it's just too socially disruptive and mankind's not ready for it yet they tried their best see and that's always 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 across the board with these different secret society groups and stuff like that all these social engineers in positions of power, it's always, oh, well, we were working for the good, but mankind's just not ready yet. They're not spiritually elevated enough to understand the ideas. Uh, so it's it's like casting your pearls before swine. See, this is always the attitude they take with people. And this is always the excuse, the excuse that they offer for doing the bad things that they do. They will claim you're just not worthy enough. You're not good enough. You're not on the same level as we, the elite, right? That's what they do, and they justify this with their actions by playing these little games where they claim to be doing one thing but yet do the exact opposite. It's always like this. Anyway, let's continue on, and we're going to wrap it up here. Let us turn now to a longer time perspective and the plausible characteristics of a society in which this image of humankind had become established. These must be considered tentative and incomplete speculations, but they do provide a basis for further discussion. And it talks about uh, individual and social goals uh, within the evolutionary transformationalist image, right? So let's just read on here, and we'll probably just wrap it up right after this paragraph or so. The evolutionary transformationalist image must begin with the relatively deterministic confines of our socioeconomic system. This is simply a recognition that, to a substantial degree, people's general pattern of behavior, perception, and motivation is conditioned by the imprinting force of our urban industrial living environment. Instead of the economy being embedded in social relations, social relations are embedded in the economic system. For once the economic system is organized in separate institutions, based on specific motives and conferring a special status, society must be shaped in such a manner as to allow that system to function according to its own laws. Rather than accept and adapt to this societal context, the evolutionary transformationalist response would affirm the relative primacy and existential autonomy of the individual while still recognizing the deterministic socialization and stringent demands made by a highly developed society. Given the power of the industrial dynamic, the nature of the transformationalist task is substantial, and it seems not unfeasible that a variety of social and psychotechnical 
technologies would be embraced, but not in the mode of control. <laughs> I'm going to pause there. No, of course not. Here's more plausible deniability, right? Let's read on. Thus, for example, behaviors consistent with operant conditioning might become commonplace, not as the linear control, which most people fear, but as reciprocal influence, which is what it seems Skinner is talking about. Taking precedence over the dominant economic goals of growth and efficiency would be two complementary guiding ethics, the ecological ethic and the self-realization ethic. The ecological ethic expresses a concern for all peoples and life on the planet, a geographic dimension for future generations of life, a time dimension, and for the interrelations of peoples, their states of consciousness, cultures, and institutions over time, a social dimension. The self-realization ethic would highly value life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-actualization. A central activity of the self-realization ethic is the pursuit of one's vocation, which would include work, play, learning, all intertwined. A central societal goal, then, should be the full participation in this expanded vocation so that all individuals have access to one or more satisfying work, play, learning ways of life. This expanded sense of vocation would vastly increase the activities in which persons could receive affirmation by society and thereby develop and hold a healthy self-image. It would also legitimate the purposeful thrust of socio-cultural revolution to include individual self-evolution of consciousness. For such an expanded sense of vocation to become a reality, material goals would have to be de-emphasized. We would tend toward a steady-state economy. Routine work tasks would become increasingly cyber cybernated. That's a great word, cybernated. And only a fraction of the work-play learning force would be required to pursue activities directed at supplying material goods and services to society. The many other activities in individualistic combination should be meaningful, non-stultifying, and non-polluting. There is one area of activity which in particular might meet these conditions. Learning, which in the broad sense includes personal exploration and research, as well as social learning activity. Robert Hutchins in 1968 describes the learning society as one that will have transformed Quote, its values in such a way that learning, fulfillment, becoming human had become its aims, and all its institutions were directed to this end. This is what the Athenians did. They made their society one designed to bring all its members to the fullest development of their highest powers. Education was not a segregated activity conducted for certain hours in certain places at a certain time of life. It was the aim of the society. The Athenian was educated by culture, by Paideia, end quote. So, let's wrap it up here, shall we? So, essentially, uh, they're talking about uh, transforming society in these various ways by using these two uh, somewhat contradictory uh, images that they give us, these two different models. Well, they want to steer towards this evolutionary transformationalist model, uh, by using the other model first. And this is what they're talking about with their Great Reset. See, this is the uh, you'll own nothing and be happy modus operandi here. That's what they're claiming. So they're claiming to be doing the good thing, right? Choosing the good path by using the bad path here as a stepping stone because mankind's just not spiritually ready. That's their excuse. But... Uh, 
by and large, it benefits them more, doesn't it? These elites of this world. They consolidate all the wealth and power and have all the control. And yet uh, they claim to be doing us a favor. Uh, we're going to be happy, right? We'll own nothing. <coughs> and we'll be happy. We'll all be equals. We'll all be on par with one another. It's the great utopian dream, isn't it? Well, utopia, dystopia. Uh, what kind of topia do you want? <laughs> I mean, so it, it's all the same thing. It's all the same, only the names are changed, right? Somebody should write a song that goes like that. But uh, at any rate, um, when it comes down to it, who's utopia? Who's dystopia? Well, folks, the utopia they want is for them, the elite, right? The rest of us, this will be a dystopia. Because you can't have it both ways, and they're trying to play it both ways. And uh, we could see the writing on the wall here. This has all been engineered this way. And that book is absolute proof of that fact. Uh, so, you know, at the end of the day, it comes down to individual choice. We can reject their offer here of this new image of man that they've been trying to push on us. We could reject that offer. We have every right to. And we have to do that on an individual basis, on an individual level, if we want to see any type of change in our society. Be the change you want to see in this world. That's the bottom line here. Thank you for tuning in. Have a good night, everyone. Take care. Come with me.